You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Thank you, John, for uh, inviting me to come. It's a, a joy to be with you. Just a few things. We actually meet on Saturday evening. Uh, that's all right. It's like no one's used to either like re- reiterating that because everyone meets Sunday morning. It's actually a joy uh, to be with you on a Sunday morning because I'm actually used to meeting on Saturday evenings now. And just um, if I do well, do I get candy after? That's just, <laughs> just two pieces. That's fine. Um, <laughs> if you want to open your Bibles with me, we'll be looking in, in Genesis chapter 2. At our church, uh, currently we're going through a series we're looking through Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis, uh, to Genesis chapter 11, and uh, we're talking about building a biblical worldview, looking at the beginning of the Bible and just thinking of the foundations that are laid there, how significant it is, just where the world says, hey, you, you came, as I jokingly say, from the goo to the zoo to you, uh, and, and then no, in, in Scripture, it's like, no, we were made in the image and likeness of God, and, and he actually made us, and he made all things and everything was good, or, or like our society will kind of determine, hey, this is your purpose and this is why you exist, and, and God's like, no, I made you, and we exist to glorify and honor him. And our society has so many things that they say, this is what we should be thinking, and many of us, like, we all have different parts of that worldview where we're not thinking what we should be, and so we need a, a biblical worldview, we need to be ever-growing and thinking through that. So I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm bringing you into this message, Genesis uh, chapter 2, We'll be looking at verses 4 to 17 in a moment. Uh, when I first was beginning this message, I thought I was going to be talking about work. There's one passage that specifically talked about that. And as I studied this, this, uh, these verses, I, I, more and more, I just kept seeing more and more details that like, okay, there's a lot more about work that's going on here. Too many details to, to dismiss. And I don't know if you ever heard that saying, the devil is in the details, it's more saying, like, as you do things, there's complication in the details. Like, you want to take a man to the moon. Like, okay, that seems simple. But, like, if you mess up those details along the way, uh, something could happen. But, friends, I hope as, we, as you hear this message, you'll, you'll see and proclaim with me, actually, no, God is in the details. And uh, there's a scripture, 1 John 3, 8. John wrote this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And ultimately, that's... That's what he did on the cross. It's to destroy sin and, and the power of sin over us and the fear of death. Jesus Christ did that. But also I want to take back this saying for the Lord. So even in the future, you ever hear anyone say, hey, the devil's in the details. You're like, no, actually God is in the details. And I hope as you hear this message today, as we look at this scripture, you'll be really convinced because I'm going to say it over and over again. But that God is in the details. And I hope even as you see that, you'll gain a greater trust for God right now in the time that we live. In, in our church, we, we stand to read God's word. I wonder if you could just do that with me just as I read the scripture. If you want to stand with me, we're going to read, I'm going to read verses 4 to 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. 
when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up from the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and Onyx are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat out of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. So as as we're looking through this message, you'll, you'll notice it's just... I'm answering the questions, when is this happening, who is doing it, why is he doing it, where is it happening, why these details, why these trees, why does it matter? That's what we be looking at and thinking through this morning. The first, even as you, as you look at verse 4 with me, I just want to point out something to you, like what kind of book is Genesis? And some people say, oh, Genesis 1 to 11 is so different than, than 12 to 50. But clearly we know that after that, it's, it's, it's historical narrative. And there's a refrain that goes throughout the book of Genesis. If you look at verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. I just want to show you the pattern. If you look or turn with me, Genesis 25, 19, to show you this pattern here in Genesis. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. In Genesis 36, 1, these are the generations of Esau. In Genesis 37, 2, these are the generations of Jacob, right? This is a historical narrative. These are real people who lived in a real time and real places. And we're like, we're, okay, we're very convinced of that. If you'll notice, though, the pattern is also found in Genesis 11. Working our way back at Genesis 11, verse 27, Now, these are the generations of Terah. That's Abraham's father. Genesis 11:10. These are the generations of Shem. Genesis 10:1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Genesis 5:1. These are the generations of Adam. And Genesis 2, 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And why am I pointing that out to you? Why am I taking our time to go through that? Because I want you to see all of Genesis is historical narrative. This is talking about something God did. It's history. It's not a fairy tale that we're looking at. And just as you see that pattern throughout the book of Genesis, I think it helps us see that more clearly. Again, that that term, these are the generations of. It could be also, uh, maybe in some of your Bibles, it could be the account of, the record of. I'm actually happy that the ESV uses the same phrase throughout so you can spot that pattern because I think God wants us to see that in Scripture. 
So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice the second time it said, it talks about, it's the, first it's made the heavens and the earth, and the second time made the earth and the heavens, because the earth is now going to be the focus of what Moses wants to talk to us about. And I don't, I don't, I'm sure we're all aware of Genesis chapter 1. God created everything in six days. Goes through, hey, there was evening, there was morning, a first day, and, and so on and so forth. And you get to 2 verse 4, and it said, God made the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And some people say, oh, this is like a different creation account. Well, no, it's just kind of context is, is key and, and it's just like a way to kind of sum up, this is what happened in this time period, right? It's like an idiom uh, in the day. So I just want to point that out to you as well. And what time period are we talking about? Well, we're talking about day six of creation. Going to the very specifics, the very details of it. We're kind of used to this. If you tell a story, say if I was telling you about my, uh, my holiday of last, last year, last summer we went to B.C., and uh, one day, I, I went golfing. We went to the beach one day. We got together with families and had a big meal. We went to the water slides like we did all, over this period of time. But then if I went specifically to one day and started telling you about my time with the water slides, and man, there was this, this fun one where you raced on mats with each other, and I won because I was heavier than my kids. And then there's one like a big tube, and you spin around, and you're screaming. And another one that you... You go, went up really high, and you go racing down so fast, so fast that the water spraying in my face actually cut my contact in half. And uh, so I took out my other contact, which is not a bad thing to not be able to see uh, at the you know, water slides in the summertime. But just to notice so there's like something broad speaking and then narrowed down to one day. This is what's happening in, in this section of Scripture we're looking at. God's going to day six and giving the details of it. Uh, before, and we see in, in Genesis 1, 26 to 31, here's kind of like 30,000 foot view. This is what happened. And then God's going back now to day six in chapter two, giving the details of it. So I want us to see that. So who, who made this? And of course, these are, these are e easy questions, easy fill in the blanks. Who made this? Well, it says here in scripture, in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. I just want to point out, though, this name of God, that the Lord God had made everything. This is a combination of, first, Yahweh, God's, like, personal name, one that he gives to Moses, right, in Exodus uh, 3, verse, I think, 14, 16, right, when Moses meets God, and there's the burning bush, and God speaks to him, and he says, hey, you, you need to go and talk to Pharaoh, and he's like, who should I say is sending me? God says, I am who I am, the self-existent one, Yahweh, the personal name of God. And the other name here we see Elohim, God. And the term Elohim is used all in Genesis chapter 1, the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who created the heavens and the earth, put the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. And so all of a sudden we see in, in Genesis 2, 4 and on this combination of these two names, Yahweh, the personal name of God, Elohim, the one who created everything so magnificent, like it's, it's wedded together, it's intimate. One commentator, Sarfati, says this, the compound name Yahweh Elohim stresses that this God with whom the first humans have special fellowship is none other than the creator of the whole universe. This, this use of the names together only happens one more time in the Pentateuch. The first 
five books of the Bible, only 20 times in the rest of the Old Testament. But I want you to see this kind of, this cool pattern that happens here. In Genesis 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 3, everything before that, you have Elohim, solely, used 35 times. From Genesis 2, 4 to Genesis 4, 2, verse 6, you have a combination that Yahweh Elohim used 25 times, 10 times Elohim, 35 times. 35 on each section. Perfect. That's how God works. He works in perfection. Even in writing scripture, like there's no accident in how his name is put forth. Anytime you see a new name of God, you should take note. What does that tell us about him? But again, God is in the details. I want you to see that with me this morning. And even that name revealed, Yahweh Elohim, or the Lord God, he's intimate with his creation. And I believe you're going to keep seeing that as the time goes on. Look with me again at verse 5. What was God doing or when was this happening? When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land and there was no man to work the ground. And, and so again, some people will say, well, when is this happening? Like God, he, he created the land. He created the bush, the vegetation in day three. So like, is this a different part of creation? I think a commentator is helpful here. Victor Hamilton said this, the plants referred to in Genesis 1 must be those that grow wild, those that reproduce themselves by seed alone. The plants referred to in Genesis 2 must be those that grow only as a result of human cultivation through planting and irrigation, right? As, as God was making them, here's the plants. Man, you're going to work the ground. You're going to watch over these plants. And in verse 6, it's mentioned, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And friends, you would be amazed at all the ink that spilled over what does that mean in verse 6. And I just think it, what it's simply saying, it hadn't rained before the flood. And this garden we're about to talk about was watered uh, through a river that ran through it as we look at verses 10 to 14. And so there's a lot of people can go a lot of different places. But I think the main thing God wants us to see if we look in verse 7 and on is who God brought there and how God formed them. If you look with me at verse 7, what did he do? What did he do? The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In Genesis 1, we have nouns that refer to mankind, made in his image and likeness. Now in Genesis 2, uh, verse 7, now there's verbs of what did God do. God formed man. This word formed, one commentator, Sarfati, says this, the verb employed here accords more with Yahweh, the character of God, that intimate, getting down, close to creation. The verb means to mold or form. It is the word that specifically describes the activity of the potter. The idea to be emphasized is that the particular care and personal attention that a potter gives to his task, God gives to man. As a potter forms the clay, so God formed Adam. That term formed, it reminds me of what David wrote. You can turn there with me or just or listen, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, looking at verses 13 to 16, this psalm that David wrote talking about how God's always with him, how God formed him. God's watching over him. Verses 13 to 16 
want to bring your attention to David reflecting on how God made him. I believe it speaks of how he made us. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Just amazing truths in that psalm right there. But I, I want you to see that God, he's, he's in the details. You know, just think about how he forms each one of us. We all have different eyes. I guess something really unique about humans, we all have different eyes, colors, shapes. We all have different fingerprints. We all walk differently. Right? Like even I, I spent some time with my father-in-law. They came to visit from BC not too long ago. And I lost him at Superstore. And I could see in the distance. I'm like, oh, there he is. Because of his walk. Right? We all have a unique walk that God has given us. And we also have a unique shape. <laughs> and I laugh because maybe we can contribute to that shape. Not only has God has formed us. But we're, we're not accidents, right? We are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. I want you to see this is identity-shaping language here. If God, who formed Adam, as we see, breathed life into him, he formed each one of us in our mother's womb. So what will you have shape your identity? Who shapes your identity? Is it friends that shape your identity? Is it clothes if you have the latest clothes, all of a sudden you, you feel like something? Is it success? Will the government shape our identity? Like who will shape our identity? Why not we let the word of God, Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God who breathed life into Adam, who formed him like a potter shapes the clay as he forms us in our mother's womb. Wow, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. We should take that to heart. That should help shape our identity. Amen. Uh, turning back there to, to Genesis 2. I love this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. We're dust. Made in the image of God, yes. But be humble. The man of dust from the ground. Gordon Wenham says this. Certainly, however, there's a play on the two terms of dust and ground to emphasize man's relationship to the land. He was created from it. His job is to cultivate it, and on death, he returns to it. It is his cradle, his home, his grave. In the Old Testament, it's, it's used often to refer back to this. Job asks of the Lord, Job 10.9, Remember, you have made me like clay, and will you return me to dust? That should humble us. Not only made in the image and likeness of God yet, but dust from the ground, formed. But amazing, look at this picture here. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Breathe into his nostrils, how intimate towards man, set apart from all creation. Henry Morris says this, life can come only from life, and the living God is the only self-existent being, so it must ultimately come from him, especially to stress the unique relationships of human life to the divine life. The scripture verse tells us that God himself directly imparted life and breath to man. He gave Adam breath and made him a living being. 
We are breathing today only because God has allowed us breath. You guys know Psalm 150 verse 6, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So whatever other reason we have as we enter in with God's people to sing songs to him, to worship him, to commit our lives to him, if we're breathing, this is a gift from God. We don't think about it. We're like, okay, okay, I'll, you know, I'd like get distracted. I would pass out. I'd forget. <laughs> but how amazing it is. Breath is a gift from the Lord that he gives each one of us. May we praise him for it. It's a common grace. Why would God give us such details? I believe one part is to show his loving care for humanity as he made them. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, here's day one to six in creation and then go back into to day five when he put the sea creatures in or the birds of air or the start, or start of day six when he made the animal. Let me tell you about how I made the dog in great. No, he doesn't, but he does about humanity. And it shows his loving care for us who are made in his image and likeness of God. No offense to dog lovers out here. So do you see that? This is his name displayed, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the intimacy of which he comes down to his creation, right? It's not like, oh yeah, I believe like God up there somewhere created everything. It's like, no, he came down right to his creation and breathed life into the first Adam. Do you know God like this? So where, where is this taking place? You can have verses 8 to 14. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there put the man who he, formed, who he had formed. He planted a garden. The Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word from which we get the word paradise. Word for garden, word paradise. And it's not just like a garden you'd have in your backyard. You know where you get carrots? Though carrots are good. But, uh, John Walton points this out. The word garden usually designates a park-like setting featuring trees that we would, we would call landscaping. In, in the ancient world, the, the Babylonians had the hanging gardens, the seventh wonder of the ancient world. I, I was trying to think, there's got to be something in Alberta we could point to, but I was thinking of the Bouchard Gardens on Vancouver Island. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's not like it's a garden where you have a few vegetables. It's just like mass amounts of trees and bushes, like landscape, like that type of garden that God made and God planted it and he made it specifically for man notice it says is in the east when Moses wrote this he was writing in Sinai so it's east from there but why does it give direction I'm going to point this out even as he talks about the rivers being there it's because it was a real place it wasn't in a galaxy long ago but it was an actual place, so where oh, it's, it's east. That's, that's where he planted. That's why it gives us that direction. And Eden, it means delight. It was a beautiful place. Notice going on there in verse 9, it says this, And out of, the out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every tree, and we know from verse 31, kind of combination of creation, they're all very good. Every tree was very good 
and tree that would have been good for food. And so all you young people who are coloring, I'm wondering, what type of fruit do you think were on these trees? It's like, what's your favorite fruit? You can yell it out. Banana? Okay, banana. Pomegranate. Pomegranate. Okay, okay. What about the younger people, though? You're getting closer. Anyone else? Pineapple? Okay. Cantaloupe and strawberries? Apples? And the list could go on. Whatever your favorite fruit is, there's trees, and it would have been like the best fruit, always in season. Like, you ever had, like, when, when fruit's, like, in season, and you're, like, you know, you taste the peach, and there's maybe, there's, like, a small window where it's, like, ah, oh, it's not ready, it's maybe gone too far, like, it's so good. I think mangoes, that's what came to my mind. I'm, like, there for sure, there's mango trees there, right? So there's all this fruit that the Lord God provided for Adam, fresh to pick, always in season. He provided that for him, and then, but there's this other detail here. So there's all these trees. God planted all these trees. And he goes to two specific trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to come back and think about that. Why did God's like, yeah, all these trees got planted, but then these two specific, I want to call them by name. We'll come back to that again. And just as I mentioned, verses 10 to 14 talking about the river that ran through Eden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It was one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And everyone is like aware of where that is? No, no one is aware of where that is, actually. Commentators are like, we're not entirely sure uh, where that is. And the name of the second river is the Gion. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And sorry, I forgot to mention another one, that the gold of the land is good. Bedlam and Onyx are there. Those precious metals. And these other two rivers, though, are more well-known. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So why are these rivers in here? One reason I think they can't be found is because as the flood happened, it was so intense, it changed the topography the lay of the land, and so they're like, where is this place where these four rivers diverge? They're not sure where. We're not sure where Eden is, but again, why are these details in here? The one is like, there was gold there, and the gold was good. Because it was an actual place. You know when, when there was that one river and diversion to four rivers? Like, that's where it was. It's also, some commentators think it's also referring to how Eden uh, was paradise, and then we see the same kind of picture and same things in the temple and the tabernacle, being made of gold, having those metals facing east like it was in the east. But I, I think a big thing is just to note, again, it's not the North Pole. I mean, it's not Santa's workshop. Eden was a real place, and God had built it for Adam and then Eve. So why is this taking place? Why did God make the garden, make the trees, make the fruit to grow? If you look at verse 15 with me, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Other translations, to cultivate it, to watch over it, to take care of it. 
In Genesis 1, 28, God, God put this call on man and woman to have dominion over the land, to subdue it. This is part of subduing and having dominion over, over the land, to cultivate it and to keep it. One commentator said this, It should be noted that even before the fall, man was expected to work. Paradise was not a life of leisured unemployment. God made man with something to do. Is that not true for us today? Work, work is good. Amen? Amen? Anyone? No? <laughs> we, were like we were created to work. It's glorifying to him. It's honoring to him. Of course, though, we're talking to Genesis 2. We know what happens in Genesis 3. Eating the fruit, sin and brokenness entering in. And actually our work in, involves thorns and thistles, like brokenness. Things don't work out as they're supposed to. There's a struggle. That, that's, that's the work we work with. But yet work itself is good. It's pleasing to God. I want us to see that. We are made to work, but we're always trying to get to a place where we work less. Dishwashers, washing machines, fast food. I think all, all good things. I'm not critiquing that at all. Especially fast food, maybe. <laughs> but it's interesting. If you start thinking through work in our culture, how they view it, people want to get to a five-hour workday. Like if you don't talk to anyone, if you don't go on Facebook, if you don't, you know, you can just cramp it down to five hours. Don't even look at another person and, and go. Or other, other places want to do like a four-day work week. You know, do your work in four days. Because we're all about can we work less and spend more time on ourselves. That's kind of actually the bent of it. But the reality is God made us to work. He made us to work. There's two ditches I want to see here. I was actually thought that was going to be the heart of my message. It wasn't as I went into this passage. Last week we looked at the seventh day of creation. God created everything in six days, rested on the seventh. I believe one thing we take from that, here's a pattern. You work six days, you rest on the seventh. We all need rest. So one ditch we have is that we never rest. Just like, hey, we got more stuff to do. We got to keep going. We got to keep going. It's like someone trying to cut a tree down or trees and never sharpening the axe. We're fooling ourselves if, like, if we don't take rest, what it will do to us. So one ditch is never resting. The other ditch is never working and always resting. And, of course, there's much more we could say. That's some who work, who work hard at their job, but then not hard at the other things God's called them to, whether in their marriage with their spouse or raising their children or friendships and relationships. There's balance to be had there. But again, there's much more to this message I want to pull out for you. So continue to move on, if you will, because I actually lost the view of the, the forest because of a tree. That's just a play on words. I thought it was witty. No one laughs at it. <laughs> Which makes it better after the pity. I appreciate that. <laughs> so verses 16 to 17 this one tree. Seriously, though, as I was reading the text, and I got here, I'm just, I got, I stuck. I was sitting, meditating upon it. The Lord God, sorry, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Every tree, except one. You see, freedom with one command to obey. We see God's authority shown here. Freedom with a limit. 
If you think about it, freedom actually always comes with a limit. Like, hey, man, you get your, light, your driver's license. If you, yeah, you can go anywhere on a road. Right? Like, you're not like, I got my, got my license. I'm going to go in the river. No, it didn't work. Going to go up a mountain? No, it's not going to. There's a limit to what we can do and where we can go. There's an attitude we think we're free. We can do anything and go anywhere. Like, really? Is he, like, did you pick your eye color? Did you pick your height? Did you, did you pick how your insides are going to be formed? No, the Lord did. You know, just think about that. Like, hey, man, really the best swimmers among, amongst us, like how long can you stand underwater for? You need oxygen. There's, there's a limit to what we can do and where we can go. Those who even made it into outer space, those who travel, like the space station better be fully operational. There will be oxygen in there. There's a limit to where we can go and what we can do. God has made us, but he's made us give us freedom, freedom with limits. What was this tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was this tree? We can learn about it by what happens after we ate from it. We mean in humans. If you look at Genesis 3.22, this is after Adam and Eve had eaten from it. It says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. The result, we, we knew good and evil. If you look before that, Genesis 2, 25, the end of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It was before they took the fruit. After they took it, Genesis 3, 7, and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They had a knowledge of good and evil now, but more so evil. Everything they knew before was good. Now they had this kind of like this weight of good and evil. Much has been written to explain what does this mean. I think, it, I think ultimately eating from the tree was moral responsibility given to us. The ability to make moral choices, weighing good and evil. Making the decision that's best for oneself. If you think every human, now we all have that passed down to us, the ability to make these moral choices. The weight of weighing good and evil and deciding that. And friends, I don't think we have done well with that knowledge. Because it wasn't a weight we were meant to carry, it was for God. Victor Hamilton writes this, Man has indeed become a God whenever he makes his own self the center, the springboard, and the only frame of reference to moral guidelines. When man attempts to act autonomously, he is indeed attempting to be godlike. He is quite apparent, it is quite apparent why man may have access to all the trees in the garden except this one. Just think of the innocence of our children and as they grow older and understand the knowledge of good and evil, just the weight that starts to be put on them, the choices that they have to make. Think of wisdom in the Bible is fearing the Lord. Right? If you have a proper fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. That's where we start to take that, that moral responsibility and put it back where it should be under the Lord. In the right category again, I believe. So it's said to Adam, you can eat from any tree, but if you eat from this tree, you, for in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. And then as, as we see, and he eats it, and they don't just drop dead. But what it means, like the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Like it is absolutely certain that death 
uh, is, is, is yours. The emphasis on the certainty of death, not the precise timing of it. Just, uh, so the question I really wrestled through, why did God put it there? Why did he make a garden? Every tree coming up, all these good fruits to eat, tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat from that one. Why did God put it there? I believe we can see God's sovereignty works even through our choices. God's sovereignty, that he is control, his plans and purposes are being accomplished, even works through our choices. Friends, we, we see in, the, in other parts of the Bible, Ephesians 1, 4, actually God had a plan for redemption before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, he had a plan for redemption. Knowing that, even putting that tree in, that man would eat from it and fall and sin and brokenness would enter in. And he had a plan to send his son, second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. God had a plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. And yet still, though, man, as a tree is there and took from it, was held responsible. Right? They were kicked out of the garden. God is in control, yet he works through our choices, and we're still held responsible for them. A good example of that, I was listening to a sermon by R.C. Sproul as I'm thinking through this, and he talked about Joseph. You all know Joseph in the latter part of Genesis, right? How Joseph had his special colored coat, and his brothers hated it, and they were jealous, so they, what, they, they beat him up, ripped the coat, and then sold him into slavery. And then in slavery, we know that he goes to a Potiphar's house and from Potiphar's house to the jail. But then in the jail, he finally gets out, and he goes to what? That second-hand man of Pharaoh. And God uses Joseph to, to help save all these people from this vast famine that came on the land. And at the end of Joseph's life, at the end of Jacob's life, he passed away. His brothers are worried Joseph's going to hurt him. And uh, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph said this to his brothers. As for you, you meant it for evil, like what they did to Joseph. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph's brothers are still responsible. They meant it for evil, but yet God, through people's choices, did great good. And of course, the greatest example of this is, is Jesus Christ, the most innocent person who has ever existed, who never sinned, never did anything wrong, yet died on the cross for my sins and for yours. Just draw your attention to Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 23. I think it makes this clear. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching to a crowd. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, yet man's responsibility. Pilate, who washed his hands, guilty. Judas, who betrayed him, guilty. Yet God had a plan. He was working through his people. Amazing. That's how our Lord works. Through our choices. Yet he is sovereign over that, guiding us. But ultimately, true, truly, in asking why did God put that tree there? 
I should actually more so answer like Job. <laughs> I'm just going to bring your attention. Job 42. You know the story of Job the whole time. Job and his friends. Job's like, if God was just here, I would, I, you know, if I, he could just answer my questions for me. And God shows up in the whirlwind. He's like, where were you when I laid the foundation? Where were you when I put the sun, moon, and stars in place? Job's response, I think ultimately should be my response in answering, asking this question. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is what God asked Job. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job's answer, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I'm comfortable landing there. <laughs> Why did God put that tree? But I think we can understand that God's sovereignty works through our, our choices. But ultimately, like, that's of the Lord. And we can rest in that. What can we learn from all this? God's in the details. He's in the details of planting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's in the details of making mankind, forming him and breathing breath into him. He's in the details of making us to work and work being good. He planted the trees. He's in the details. He's in the details of two trees being called by name. Again, the, the knowledge of good and evil. We don't see it again in the Bible because every human after that has that knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life. We don't see again in Scripture. We see it sometimes referenced in the Old Testament until the New Testament, until the final book in Revelation. I just want to draw your attention to that Revelation 22, verse 2. Amazing thing as I'm going through Genesis is everything God did at the beginning and sin and brokenness enter the world. And then you see him bring redemption, consummation in the end. If you'll notice with me, Gen uh, Revelation 22, 2. Looking at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. The river's there, again, in heaven. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There we see the tree of life again. And we know that anyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ, who has given their life to him, who is saying, I am surrendering to you, O Lord. I'm believing, Lord Jesus, we did on the cross. We'll be there. And we're going to eat from the tree of life. It was removed at the beginning as sin entered in. Those who trust in Jesus Christ, we'll, we'll see it again. In heaven with God. Also, I just want to point this out to you, that how God is in the details in Eden, in the garden. Humanity is plunged into sin. Adam and Eve, as they, they eat from the fruit they were not supposed to. Friends, Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried in a tomb. But I want to show this to you in John 19, verse 40 and 41. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one has been laid. Jesus was laid down into a, a garden tomb. Sin entered in 
in a garden. That's where sin and brokenness happened. And where did redemption happen? He rose again from the grave, and there was a garden. So much so, right, Mary Magdalene, when she sees Jesus in John's gospel, she's like, are you the gardener? But surely it's an accident. No, God is in the details. That's how he orchestrates things. So we can see, when we see this, look, we can trust him more. You can say, yeah, yeah, but I live in 2022. And we've been going through two years of this hard season, and there's been a lot of pain and suffering and injustice and sorrow. Is God in the details now? I just want to show you one other scripture, Acts 17, 26 to 27. is the Apostle Paul preaching in Athens. And he says this as he's preaching. That God, that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. As in, God has given the appointed times and the boundaries where we should live. And why, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God has determined the exact times and places that we should live. We live in Canada in 2022 because God has determined that's where we would be. If you're in Olds or the surrounding area, wherever you live, God has you there for a specific reason at this specific time. This is our time that we, as Christians, this is how we get to live out our Christian faith in the context of 2022 in Canada. God has determined the exact times and places that we would be. Why? So we would reach out to him. He's close to us. That we would know him more, that we would trust him more. And friends, who is your neighbor? Who does God have close to you? Who, who do you work with? There's no accident at this time. He's determined the exact times and places we should live. And as people are going through the turmoil of these times, may you point them to Jesus Christ and show them that God's actually not far from each one of us. That we would know him. God is in the details. Friends, we're together today. After two hard years, we can gather together because God has allowed us to. Because he's allowed us to keep breathing. Because he's provided what we need so we continue to have food on our table. Can we praise him? He is faithful. I know just even referring, thinking back to in our church during this time, people have met one another and gotten married. In this period of time, people, babies are being born. We've seen the Lord build a new church in Red Deer. In this time, God is in the details, even now. So can you see with me, God is in the details. Genesis 2, day 6 of creation. Can you see that God is in the details of our lives today? We can trust him. Lord, give us greater faith, whatever else would come. We know he's watching over us. Will you bow with me? Close this time in prayer. Oh God, I praise you for your word. I praise you for how you do all things well. I praise you, Lord, for how we see how you intimately made Adam. Lord, how you intimately make each one of us and I thank you, Lord, as we see from the beginning of Scripture to the end of time, 
your precision, your planning. I pray that each one of us would know how much you're in the details of our lives. I know it's hard to see in the midst of it. May you give us grace even to look back in the past two years and give thanks. You are in the details of our lives. Give us greater faith and trust in you. I pray you'd seal this word in our hearts. Everything that's from you, God, may it rain. That which is from me, may it fall to the side. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.